visitors and ministers, it's only natural that concerned Christians would contact us and, us and ask us some questions, particularly during this coronavirus epidemic, pandemic that's all over the world at this time. And it's a scary time for a lot of people. And so concerned Christians are asking, they say, Pastor, uh, is, is this God judging the world? Is this God's judgment upon a wicked world? Is that what it is? Or are these the end times? Is the Lord coming back again soon? Or are scarier things going to happen in the future? And so this throws up a lot of questions and, and genuine questions that people are really concerned about. And so this morning, I, I want to address somewhat, because it's a big subject, but somewhat uh, of those questions this morning. Is the Lord coming back soon? Well, I truly believe that he is. And in fact, I believe that most Christians who study the word of God also believe that he is coming soon. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there was many scriptures, there's many prophecies, there's many signs regarding the Lord's, the Lord's first coming to this earth. And the prophets sometimes hundreds of years in advance, sometimes 700 years in advance, they would prophesy about the coming of the Messiah. Even to the very point where they would show where he was going to be born, the very town he would be born in, and also how he was going to be born. So there was many, many signs and many, many scriptures giving regarding his first coming. But I'm afraid that Israel was not listening, was not paying any heed, and missed the whole thing. Missed that the fact that Messiah was coming. Missed the fact that he did indeed come. Having eyes they saw not, having ears they heard not. And so there was lots of evidence for that. Now one day, Jesus' disciples, they, they pulled the master aside privately. And they say, Lord, tell us, what is the sign of your coming? We want to know. What evidence can you give us that you are coming back to this earth again? And so the Lord then began to show them some things and talk to them. In Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Luke 17, he sort of lays out the prevailing conditions on the earth just prior to his return again. Now, Christ's eminent return in the New Testament is writ very large. Over 300 times, it specifically says that the Lord is coming back again. One in every 25 verses, on average, relate to the Lord's second coming. In fact, Paul mentions it 50 times alone. And 50 times, the Bible tells us that we need to be ready for his coming. In fact, there are eight times more verses regarding the Lord's second coming than there ever was, was regarding his first coming. In fact, the verses regarding creation and the fall of man and the Lord's birth and his death and his resurrection all together doesn't even add up to the many verses there are regarding the Lord's second coming. And so Jesus spelt out the prevailing conditions very, very clearly. And he, he tells us in Matthew 17 that it would be like as it was in the days of Noah prior to the flood. And it would be like what it was in the days of Lot prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, these warnings are being 
many of them are being fulfilled very clearly and speedily in our generations. Things I preached on 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago are now happened. They're happening before our very eyes. So I can't deny it. He is coming back again very soon. So let us not be the generation that misses those signs of his second coming. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul also speaks of his second coming, as does Peter. And so I think that it's sad that in many churches today and many ministries, they no longer speak about the second coming of Christ. They say it's too controversial. It's too difficult to explain. You know, it's, it's too hard for people to grasp. And so they're almost silent on it. And that's a shame because it gets such a big mention. And we as preachers, it would be remiss of me today in the midst of all that's happening around the world and people asking these questions, It'd be wrong today if I didn't try to address it and give you some kind of an answer. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says these words. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Last days here means the last of the last days. And perilous, the word perilous here means fierce, dangerous, unpredictable, harmful, and harsh and so I think that Paul was looking far ahead and thinking about the days that we're living in right now let me read to you what Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 the first few verses without even commenting but just reading it and see if this does not resonate with what is happening generally around the world today now I know right now there's a lot of kindness being shown. There's a lot of friendliness being shown. People are going the extra mile. They're going out of the way to help each other. Wonderful. Thank God for that. But generally, generally, this is what the world has been like. Paul says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Is that not an apt description, generally speaking, of the world that we live in today? I'm sure like me, you've watched television, you've read newspapers recently, uh, and maybe you're wondering just how worse can it possibly get? Uh, you know, in this past 20 years, this world has seen at least, at least 20 natural disasters. And these have caused the death of over 1 million people. And millions have been displaced Millions have become destitute and poverty-stricken. We have had earthquakes, we had tsunamis and cyclones and typhoons and volcanic eruptions. We have had epidemics and we've had a, just a few years ago, we had a global economic uh, catastrophe. In fact, some nations were on the brink of bankruptcy. And so in North Africa and the Arab nations, they have had uprisings and revolutions and we see that uh, the Middle East is just a tinderbox and it doesn't take much to ignite it. And on top of all of that, including Syria, which we haven't even touched on, and all that's happening there, the many that's died, many displaced, on top of all of that, 
Then now we have COVID-19. Can things get any worse? Well, the truth is, they most certainly will. Jesus prophesied 2,000 years ago that these things would not only happen, but they would intensify. They would get worse. And so in Luke 21, Luke 17, and Matthew 24, and other scriptures, he says that just before his return, there would be signs that we could watch for. Let me just read you something Jesus said in Luke 21, verses 25 and 26. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Now, we don't know yet what those signs are going to be, but what we can say is that they're in the sun and the moon and the stars, then the whole world is going to see them. Nobody will be able to hide from them. They'll be obvious and plain for everybody to see. Then he says, and on earth, distress of nations. Are we not seeing distress of nations today? With perplexity, he said. And that means that people are at a loss what to do. Confused, don't know what to do. And we have seen that over again where when this pandemic struck, we didn't know what to do. And still we're doing the best we can. And sometimes we're playing it by ear as we go along. And sometimes we give our politicians a very hard time. But if you were in their position, what would you do? You know, we can sit in our armchairs and say we should do this and do that. But there's a lot of perplexity. And then he says, and the sea and the waves roaring. Now I want to come back to that in a moment. And then he said these words, men's hearts failing them for fear of the things and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. Can you imagine that? Men's heart failing them for fear of the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth, whatever that may be. It's not pleasant. For the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. The sea and the waves roaring. What does that remind you of? The Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia in 2004, and that tsunami that hit the Japanese coast in March 2011. In one instant, scientists tell us that there was enough power released that was the equivalent of more than a thousand times all the nuclear bombs that are stored up in this world. In fact, they say it was the equivalent of seven trillion tons of TNT. And that was just nature. And suddenly, mankind was shaken out of its complacency. A complacency that says that science is God, that technology is king, that man is supreme. And in one moment, we realized that Mother Nature, at its brutal worst, that we could do nothing. We watched on our television screens as those tsunamis hit and how the, even ships were found later two miles inland. We could do nothing about it. Jesus also said there'd be signs in the heavens, that the powers of the heavens would be shaken. The Apostle Peter agrees with this when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, and I'll read it for you. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and both the earth and the works that are in them will be burnt up. The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, 
and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, Peter was a fisherman. He was not a nuclear physicist. But if a nuclear physicist was reading that, then I think he would be thinking that sounds mightily like some kind of nuclear catastrophe. And then Jesus said in Luke 21, verses 10 to 11, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences and there will be fearful sights and great signs. And then in Matthew 24, 8, he says, All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, you see, being a preacher, I, it would be remiss of me, as I said, if I did not warn you about these things that are happening and will happen. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14 and 8, it says, If the, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? Whenever God judged Egypt in the days of Moses, he sent ten plagues, and each one was increased in intensity until the very last one. And then in the book of Revelation, God also once again will judge the earth, and only this time it will be three sets of seven judgments, one after the other, all increasing in intensity. And these judgments are called seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. And you can find them in Revelation chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 and chapter 16 of Revelation. And the Apostle John writing in Revelation in chapter 8, verses 8 to 10, he speaks of the second and third trumpet. And I just want to mention these. Here's what he said. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain was thrown into the sea. Now, now John's speaking in Revelation in the language of appearance. That is to say, he, he never seen anything ever like this. So how do you describe the indescribable? This is what he's trying to do. And so whatever this was seemed to him like a great mountain thrown into the sea. Could that be a comet? And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So in one moment, a third of all shipping all over the world was destroyed and a third of all living creatures in the sea died. Can you imagine what the seashores would be like with all that washing up on the beaches? It would be horrible. And then he said, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch. Could that be an asteroid? Billions of dollars are being spent today by teams of scientists and astrophysicists and astronomers panning the skies, looking for asteroids that perhaps may come close to the Earth, and some has come close to the Earth, looking to see if some is going to hit the Earth. Could this be an asteroid? And it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of the water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, which means bitter, by the way, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. Can you imagine a third of all drinking water on earth was destroyed in an instant? Now let me read to you the words, believer, of Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 3 to 8. And I want you, believer, today, I want you to pay careful attention to this because this will encourage you, and it's meant to encourage you. Remember Jesus talking to his disciples, but he's talking to us too because he was projecting away 
in the future. Listen to what he said. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And that's happened in this very day. There's people today who claim to be Christ. A Messiah has come to earth and will deceive many. And you will hear the wars and rumors of wars. And then he said these words, and he says this to you today. He said, see that you be not troubled. Isn't that comforting? After all that we have just said, scary stuff. But he says to us believers, see that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. All these, he said, are the beginnings of sorrows. So is this coronavirus, is this a judgment from God? Is God judging the world? Now, we know that he does, has judged and will judge. We, we saw in the Old Testament how he sent ten plagues. We saw from Revelation how there's going to be sets of judgments coming, one after the other, increasing intensity. So is this coronavirus, is this a judgment from God? Is God judging a wicked world? Because people ask that question. Well, I want to try to give you some kind of an answer here. You know, whenever you start to say that God is judging the world, it's a big statement to make. We know that he has, we know that he will, but is he doing it right now? Is this pandemic, is this his judgment? We need to be very, very careful that we don't say God is doing this and God is doing that and God is judging here and God is judging there. We need to be careful. And Jesus gives us some advice here. In, in Luke chapter 13, in fact, in Luke chapter 12, just before 13, Jesus, you know, everywhere he went, there was vast crowds followed in multitudes. And in among the multitudes, there was always those scribes and Pharisees always try to trip him up and trick him in his words and try to make him stumble over something and get him into trouble. And it was no different here. And so he rebukes them. You know, and he says, you're not discerning properly. You're not judging right. And here's what he said. Let me just read this little couple of verses in the chapter before, chapter 12, verse 54. Then he said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you not discern this time? So he said, your judgment is faulty. You're not discerning properly. You're getting it wrong. And then in chapter 13, this is the part that I really want you to pay attention to. Then they were present at that season. Somebody told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this was a big incident in the time of Christ. And Pilate was a brutal governor. Here was a man who wouldn't even blink at massacring people 
or executing people. In fact, the, ironically, the only person that bothered to put to death was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He really, really struggled with that. In fact, his wife said, she had a dream the night before, said, have nothing to do with this just man. And you know that he tried several times to try to put them off from, from crucifying him. But in the end, his job was more important and he crucified Christ. So this was a brutal man, this Pilate. And, and who these Galileans were, what they were doing, we're not sure. Jewish historian Josephus says something about this, but we're not sure. But what we are sure of, whatever they did, he massacred them. He mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. And it was a brutal massacre. Now, these people were implying, well, these Galileans, they must have been wicked. They must have done something terrible for this to happen. And what they were implying was this was God's judgment on them. For whatever they did, God was judging them. So listen to this. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? See what he's saying? Are you saying that these Galileans, that they were really, really bad and that's why they suffered so badly here because they were bad and God was judging them and he was using Pilate to massacre them because of their wickedness. Is that what you're really saying? He, he listened, listened to his answer to that. He says, I tell you, no. He's very emphatic. No, he said, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then he further goes on to amplify that by another incident that happened. He says, are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Do you think because that tower fell on them that they were wicked people and God was judging them but nobody else knew but God punished them and judged them and that's why the tower fell on them? Is that what you really think? Is that what you think God was doing? He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So Jesus is saying, be very, very careful whom we attribute judgment of God to. Be very careful because we might get it wrong. And anyway, all of us are sinners before a holy God. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. Unless we repent, we'll all perish someday. We all know John 3.16, don't we? It's a favorite verse, particularly of Christians. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But what about the next verse? John 3.17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him they might be saved. Why did he not send them into the word to condemn the word? Because it was already condemned. It was already condemned. We had all broken God's laws. We stood condemned before Holy God. But God sent his only son to die on that cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for our broken laws that we broke. God sent his son to pay that. He didn't send him to condemn us. He sent his son to save us. God's in the saving business. He wants to save men and women from their sins. And from this world that's done much harm in this world, he wants to save men and women and boys and girls. Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again.
What does that mean, being born again? Well, to come into this earth, we had to be born physically. To come into this world, we had to be born physically to come into the family that we belong to. But to come into the family of God, you've got to be born again, only this time spiritually. Something's got to happen to you on the inside. You've got to be born again from the Spirit of God to become part of the family of God. That's what Jesus means. In Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Imagine it this way. What, what, what does falling short mean? What, how short is short? Imagine you're in a field and a raging bull is charging after you. And you can hear its hooves pounding behind you. You can almost smell its breath. And you're running as fast as your legs can carry you. But you know ahead, there's, a, there's, a, there's something you've got to jump. There's a, there's a creek you've got to jump. And it's very deep and it's 10 feet wide. But the best you've ever jumped has been about three or four feet. But this time you're running as fast as you can. You're running for your life. The adrenaline is pumping through you. And so you come to the edge of that and you leap as far as you possibly think you can leap. And your legs, your arms are flailing. You're trying to gain every inch and you jump the best you possibly can, but you fall short. You jump nine feet, six inches. You're only six inches short, but you might as well have been a mile short because you drop to the rocks below and you die. See, short is short. James 2.10, James says, even if you keep the whole law and just stumble in one part, God will hold you guilty as if you broke all of his law. Why is that? Because his law is perfect. You say, well, nobody could keep that standard. Exactly. None of us could, but Jesus did. In fact, he was the only one who was able to keep that law and he kept it perfectly. So all of us lawbreakers, Jesus came to save us from the condemnation of breaking God's holy laws. Romans 6, 23, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. What does death mean here? The wage of sin is death. It means spiritual separation from God. See, when Adam and Eve, whenever they committed that sin in the Garden of Eden, when God told them, there's just one thing I don't want you to do, just one thing, and that was the one thing they did. And they broke God's law, they broke his commandment, they were disobedient, and they died. God said to them, as soon as you partake of that fruit, you will die. And they did. Not physically, that would come many, many years later, but they died spiritually. How do we know? Because as soon as God comes looking for them in the garden in the cool of the day, they ran and they hid themselves from the presence of God because spiritually they had died on the inside. They're now they were no longer in true fellowship with God. They were, their sins separated them from God. And in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we had no time for him, when we rebelled against him, when we even blasphemed his precious name, yet, while we were yet sinners, when we were at his worst, God did his best for us. He sent his only son to die for us. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto 
salvation. Romans 10, 13, For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I've been talking about judgment today. It's uncomfortable for me to have to read those scriptures to you. It's uncomfortable reading, isn't it? It's not something you like to hear. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to hear, actually, and it's scary. But you may say, well, I'm some kind of a crackpot preacher just trying to frighten people, but there's no truth in it. Well, if you think that, let me challenge you. Why did you get a Bible? Why did you go to it and read the words of Jesus, the Son of God? These are not my words. I didn't write this. This was the Son of God who said these things. Read what he said for yourself. Or on the other hand, you may say, David, well, what you said is true today. I believe that it's absolutely true. And I do believe from what you said and from what the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is coming back again to this earth, but I'm not ready for his coming. I'm not ready for his coming. I need to be ready for his coming. So if that is you, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray with me just in a moment. I want you to pray a prayer. Believe it in your heart sincerely, and I believe that God will hear the cry of your heart. So pray this with me. You don't have to pray the exact same words, but as close to it as you can, mean it in your heart, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Say these words, Oh God, I realize today that I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. The salvation that your son provided for me on the cross of Calvary when he went and died to pay the punishment for my sins that separated me from you. And so today, I ask you, Lord Jesus, to be my Lord and be my Savior. I am sorry for my sins. I'm sorry that I did not live my life for you. But today, right now, I change my mind and I change the thought of my heart because I do want to live for you. I do want to be a real, true Christian. And so I ask you to save my eternal soul. You said if I would come to you, you would never cast me away. So I come to you today humbly, reverently, and I ask, save my eternal soul. Come into my life today. Come into my life to stay. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please tell somebody. Go out and confess it with your mouth. Maybe a loved one or maybe somebody you know. Tell somebody, confess that, that Jesus Christ is now your Savior. And when you do that, it will make you more bold to be a witness for Jesus. Why did you write to us? Or why did you phone us? Why did you contact us some way and let us know you made that decision? And we would be happy to pray with you and pray for you. And then when all this is over and it's time to go to church, why did you find a good Bible-believing church somewhere that maybe perhaps is close to you, but a Bible-believing church that teaches these things and get in there and grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Jonathan is going to come and he's going to sing our final worship song and uh, we'll enjoy that with him doing that. And then God willing, willing next week, which will be our seventh lockdown service, then I hope and I trust that you can join us for that. 
and we're looking forward to sharing the Word of God with you once more again. So God bless you. We love you. We appreciate you and we miss you. We really, really miss you. We miss our fellowship together. We miss our great times we have in the house of the Lord. But one day that will return again and boy, we're going to enjoy it. So God bless you. Amen.